I want to invite uh, you to uh, uh, give attention to the study of God's Word. We're going to be uh, uh, building on what we talked about last week, and we're going to talk about this morning about how to pray for evangelism, or uh, if we go with Adam's title, praying evangelistically. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. Last week we talked about the motives for evangelism. And if you were with us, you remember that uh, the Great Commission is obviously our mandate and our reason for being here on planet Earth. Uh, Frankly, we can do everything that we do here better in glory. And the reason that we are here is to bear witness to the glories of Jesus Christ who saved us. If it was really all about us then as soon as we got saved, what would be the best thing for us to uh, to have happen? We would immediately die and go to heaven, immediately be translated into heaven. Why has God chosen to leave us here? That is to bear witness to him and to point people to him. Uh, Part of the means by which he has decreed uh, through to bring in his elect is the preaching of the gospel by those of us who have been saved. Uh, You can add to that uh, absolute mandate that Christ has given us to go into all the world and make disciples. You can add to that the certainty of eternal judgment. Uh, God is going to judge the living and the dead. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There was no one righteous, not even one. And if it... And if... uh, If God had not come in the person of Jesus Christ to die for us, he would still, still have every right to condemn every one of us, everybody that's ever been born, uh, because of our sin. Uh, I think the, the, I used to call it the extra point verse, because uh, before I was saved, that was what the card that everybody put up in between the uprights before you kick an extra point, uh, and that is John 3.16 or John 3.3. And I can remember as a kid even going and looking that up a few times and going, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, but not connecting the dots. What's really fascinating to me is once I got saved and I actually started to read things in context, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but might have eternal life. What everybody skips is the next couple of verses where it says God didn't send a son into the world to judge the world because the world stood condemned already. If God had done nothing, then we would all be condemned. That's what makes it good news. That's why it's called the gospel. The good news is God has not left us in our fallen condition, helpless, due only wrath for the accumulation of all of our sins. God actually took action and entered into His creation, willingly laid His life down for us. God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he made a way for us to be reconciled to him. As Jesus hung on the cross and he fulfills the last of the scriptures in John 19, we're told that he says, Te telestai, it is accomplished or finished or complete. And then he yielded up his life. He willingly gave up his life so that we could be reconciled to him. Listen, that's the God we serve. That's the God who saved us, the God who willingly yielded himself up and took upon himself the fullness of God's wrath due to us for our sins so that we could be reconciled to him. 
Now, that's a pretty amazing story. That's, that's pretty awesome news. Would you agree? If, if you're a believer in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is, this is the message, this is the truth that continues to, to, uh, to reverberate through your soul and just leave you with, with uh, wonder and praise. Why would God save a wretch like me? Why would God ever choose to save me? Why would He ever have an interest in, in, in having a relationship with me? Even David, the sweet psalmist, I, I don't have this in my notes, um, but uh, Albert started us a minute late anyway, so this counts against his time. But in Acts chapter, or excuse me, Acts, Psalms, Psalm 8, uh, David is talking about how great God is. And you know he's the man after God's own heart, right? And he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. And when I consider the, your heavens, the work of your fingers, when I look at creation, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, here's what I ask. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Why do you give a single thought to any one of us? When I consider that creation, when I look at it and see how big and wonderful it is, the, the one thing that I can't help but ask is, why, God, why would you take any note of me? And yet he has. He absolutely has. And he took such note of me that he came and died for me so that I could be reconciled to him. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you have been saved by his grace, then you should be filled with so much love and wonder and appreciation for him that you become more and more like him, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, who looked out at all of the people and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I think the one thing, especially as Americans, I think the one thing that we are inclined to do is to look at other people and look down on them. And unfortunately, I think one of the things that we are all too often ready to do as even Christians is look at the unsaved around us and look forward just to the day when we don't have them. And yet when Jesus was here, surrounded even by his enemies, he did good to those who mocked him and persecuted him. Even those who nailed him to the cross and hung him up. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when you look at the, the people around you that are lost, the people around you that do not have Christ, how, how can you be uh, one who identifies yourself as a sinner saved by grace, reconciled to God, and not have a compassion and a concern for their eternal destiny? How can you be hard-hearted and wall off your soul from the realization of their heavy plight? You know, uh, just this week, my daughter started working at a veterinarian clinic or whatever it's called. And, uh, uh, she works at a vet's office now. And uh, she came home and she said, I got to tell you something, Dad. Uh, I said, is this a sad story? 
And she says, well, no, but yes. And then she goes to tell me about how, and I'm doing it to you just like she did to us, yes. So she goes to tell me this story about how uh, a guy's wife died, and uh, after a couple of weeks, he had to bring her cat in because it wouldn't eat and just was slowly dying, missing his wife. And so he had to, and so... (laughs) My wife tears up. I will not admit to tearing up. But it was just, you know, now tell me something. Did your heart just shrink a little bit when I told you that little story? Okay. Now, cats are superior to dogs. Everybody knows that. But they're still not people despite what they think. Okay? And how, you, how we can look at fellow human beings, fellow people is, that are bearers of the image of God, just like you and me. People who are every bit as worthy of eternal condemnation as we were, okay, who need Christ just as much as we did. How can you look at them and not have your heart go out? Not be motivated to share the good news with them. We talked about motivations for sharing the gospel last week. This week, I want to discuss praying along those same lines. How do I pray in a way that fits into the context of evangelism? I suspect that a number of us prayed over the course of this last week already after last week's message when we went through uh, those motivations for evangelism. Some of us may have asked forgiveness for not being more faithful in sharing the gospel with uh, our friends and our family members and our neighbors. Some of us uh, may have uh, returned to praying for somebody or thought of somebody and we started praying for them that God would save them. And I think most people have loved ones that they have prayed for on and off or maybe constantly for years. And I think most of us probably associate that with praying evangelistically. That when we talk about praying uh, evangelistically, we're, we're talking about thinking about somebody and praying that God would save them because only God can save them. Well, okay, so theologically and biblically, to one, extent, to one degree, that's true. Okay, as Jesus told Nicodemus, okay, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. You, you, it, it's going to take God changing the person's heart. That's, a, that's absolutely true. The means by which he changes that person's heart, though, is through the Spirit working through the proclamation of the gospel or somebody sharing the gospel. That's Romans 10, like what we looked at last week. Okay, so when we're praying that God would save somebody, it's it's fine to pray. God, I love my son. Will you please save him? God, I love my mom. I love my dad. I love my, uh, my daughter. I, I love my parents. I, I love my spouse. I, I love my coworker. I love my neighbor. Please save them. But what are you ultimately asking there? You're asking for something that you know you want, right? And you know is good for that person. And you know in a general sense That is part of God's revealed will. He does desire all men to repent. It says God commands all men to repent. That's what he's he's expressed as his direct command to all mankind. Right? Now, do you know whether this person is actually part of God's elect or not? 
No, that's outside of our control. That is ultimately between that person, whoever he or she is, and God. But what do I have control over? I have control over me. And I think one of the things that, that frustrates people in their prayer life is they have a complete wrong view of prayer. You pray for the salvation of somebody you really, really love and you really believe God will save them and you really believe that with all your heart you want God to save them and, and, and you just wonder if you're saying it wrong or doing it wrong or maybe you're not living a holy enough life for Him to be willing to do it for you. Maybe then you want, begin to wonder if prayer works today or if, or, if, or if God even listens to your prayers. You know where all of this, you know where the collapse of a, uh, of a, a Christian prayer life normally comes about with a misunderstanding of what prayer really is. Not how it works, what it is. Okay? The real key here is understanding, first and foremost, that prayer isn't a religious exercise and it isn't a magical formula. It's an ongoing part of an intimate personal relationship with Almighty God as one of His children. I want to show you this just by way of introduction. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We'll look at just a couple of verses here, and then some verses that you know very well. For starters, we'll take a look at Matthew 6. Uh, verse 1, Jesus says, just by way of introduction, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And so he talks about giving to the poor and those kinds of things. And then he gets in verse 5, he gets into the subject of prayer. He says, when you pray, you're, <coughs> excuse me, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, uh, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the straight corners so they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Okay, you don't pray uh, just so that you appear religious and righteous and upright and pious and holy and devout uh, before people. Uh, and if you do, then that's, if that's all you're trying to do is put on a show to impress people. It's pretty easy to impress people, and that's all you're going to get from praying like that. When you pray, Jesus says... You need to go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, I want you to notice two things here. Number one, I want you to notice that prayer then is an individual conversation between you and God as your father. And secondly, that you are looking for God to give you something that specific as a result of this prayer that you're praying, this request that you're making. You follow me? There is a reward that's tied to it. He will reward you. Verse 7, I want you to notice he talks about those who, who pray and treat prayer like it's some kind of mantra or magical incantation. Or if I go through the steps right or enough times, I will obligate God to have to reward me. Or like those little app quests or whatever. If I click the button often enough or touch my screen often enough, sooner, sooner or later, I just wear down the app and I get my reward. Okay? Listen. Uh, 
when, when you look at the text, he says, uh, when you are praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Don't just talk and talk and talk. They suppose they will be heard because of their many words. They think that they're going to, be, get, an, they're going to get an answer to their prayer because they just keep saying the same thing over and over again. And finally, God just says, I'm sick of hearing from Steve. Here, Steve, take it. Go. Now, tell me something. Is that not the way? Uh, I think all of us at some point have behaved this way toward our kids. Can I, can I get an amen or is this? Is it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Sooner or later. Oh, mom, please. Oh, mom, please. Oh, mom, please. Oh, mom, please. And Steve rolls his eyes and Carrie goes ahead and gives away the cookie. Right. That goes backwards. Yeah. OK. So. Right. Oh, mom, please. Oh, my. And then dad gives. Right. Prayer. We think that prayer is like that. We think that God is like some cosmic Coke machine or vending machine or Santa Claus. And if we just tell him what we want, that he should give it to us. Listen, God has when you talk about prayer, God is still God. okay? and you are one of his children. Prayer is a conversation with God, who is your father. It's a a conversation that you as one of his children are having with him. It's not something you do so that you check off the box and say, yes, I've been religious. I've, I've satisfied my religious duty today and I had my prayer time. I'm not earning credits with God. I'm not banking credits that I can later spend on asking God for things that I want. Okay, prayer is not a religious duty I satisfy and check off. Prayer is not a show to put on for other people. Prayer is not just going through the motions uh, uh, as many times as necessary to finally wear God down to give me what I want. Notice he says in verse 8, don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you what? Ask him. Now, go back to verse uh, 6, the end of verse 6 and verse 8 and Take a look, compare what you see in those two verses. What is the common thread between the two? God is looking to answer your prayer, reward you for coming to him and asking him for something. And what is it that he's going to reward you with? Supplying you what you need. This is not, can you ask God to save somebody you love? Yes. Yes. Is that a biblical request? Yes. Is that necessarily within the sovereign grand plan of God? I have no idea. And neither do you. Is it okay to say, God, if possible, I'd really like this weekend to be a sunny day, us to have a sunny day because, you know, the kids are getting married or we're having the whatever party or what. Can you ask for those kinds of things? Yes. Do you think that God, in his sovereignty, as a wise and loving father, is going to change the weather of the universe in order to satisfy that one little personal request that you have. Well, he did darken the sun when Christ uh, died in our place. He did uh, stop the sun from moving in the context of uh, Joshua's longest day so that he could finish routing his enemies. God can change the weather. How often has he done it? Well, that's twice. 
You can throw in the time that the disciples awakened Jesus on the boat and the storm was there and they said, you don't care about, don't you care about us? And he demonstrated his absolute authority over creation. But when he did those things, you notice there, there was always a grand redemptive historical purpose. Have you noticed that God has made the Christian life a life of faith where signs and wonders took place in specific contexts to to make a specific point, uh, reveal a specific truth for all of redemptive history? Does it mean that he doesn't love me if he doesn't give me a sunny day for my birthday or a rainy day for my birthday if I'm Catherine? Okay, because that's her preference. Okay, does it does it mean that God doesn't love me if he doesn't just dance to my tune? No, it means that he's sovereign. It means that he's sovereign. When you when you spend most of your time asking for things that you want. And not focusing on what you need, specifically what you need to live a life that honors him, you're going to find that you don't get an answer most of the time. That's that's prayer. I mean, can you go into your heavenly father's presence and just share with him like a little kid all the things you want? And one of the coolest things that I remember as a dad when the kids were little is them telling me all the things that 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 they wanted. Now, it didn't work the same way when I was a kid. When I was a kid, they had these really cool things called the J.C. Penney and the Sears catalogs. And when the Christmas catalogs came out. My mom just laid them out on the kitchen table and we went through and we circled all the stuff we want and some of us made lists and put page numbers and then ranked it in priority, right? Okay, did you get everything off your list? Were there some things that were purposefully no because at 10 I don't think you need a machete, son, <laughs> right? Uh, you, you, you understand what I'm talking about? I think a lot of times we behave like these young kids and we think we're these super mature adults. It, you need to recognize that prayer is not mystical. It's not magical. It's not some kind of a weird spiritual thing. Is it spiritual? Yes, because you're speaking to your heavenly father. But it's an intimate personal relationship with God. What's, well, then, then how should I be praying? You know, it's really funny. Jesus answers that question in the next verse. Notice verse 9. He says, pray then in this way, not in these words, which is that's the thing that tickles me to no end. Okay, because that's what so many people have done. They've turned this into a mantra. I'm going to pray exactly these words over and over and over again, which Jesus said, just said in a couple of verses beforehand, don't do that. So what does that mean? That means this is a pattern. This is a model. Okay, uh, he says, Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Well, what's the, how do you enter into God's presence? Never losing sight of the fact that he is your Father and that he is holy. And that your first and foremost request is that he is, his name would be viewed as holy. And that begins with being viewed as holy by whom? By you when you're praying. Number two, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what's that talking about? Your kingdom come and your will be done. So when I'm saying, may your kingdom come, will you come back and, and judge all of your enemies and wipe them all out and bring in heaven? Because I'm tired of living in a sin-cursed fallen world. No, may, may your kingdom come and your will be what? Done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Well, let me ask you a question. What's the implication? If you're asking for that, what's the implication? You're asking God to help you be obedient and do His will. You ever needed help to be obedient? Let me ask you a question. This is where I go from preaching to meddling. Hey, ever had a time in your marriage or in your home where there's contention or there's heated fellowship? We call that a fight in my house. Uh, so when, when there's conflict, you ever had a time when that's going on? And in your heart, you know that you need to go back and ask for forgiveness, but she started it. You know that you need to get control of your own heart and your own attitude, but he, you know what I'm talking about? You know, that's the perfect time to ask God to help you be obedient, humble yourself. And why? Because you're struggling with your flesh. You want to know how to get a yes uh, every time to your requests? Ask, keep asking him to help you obey, and then in faith and obedience, step out and trust that he'll give it to you. You know what you're going to find? He gives it to you. He gives it to you. Now you know why Paul says pray without ceasing. Because throughout the day, all day, every day, throughout the day, there are times when I need God to help me change my attitude, help me change my thinking, help me understand things from his perspective. Help. Have you ever been in a conflict and not been able to see your side of it? Not be able to see how you're at least partly to blame, if not largely to blame, and maybe even the instigator. Nuts! Not again, Right? Uh, you, know, you know what one of my regular requests is? God, help me see my own sin in this. It is me again, isn't it? I just don't see it, though, because she, da 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 or he, da 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 and then the next thing you know, it starts to come to mind. Oh, Lord, it is me again, isn't it? Will you help me repent, please? Help me understand what to say. Help me, help me humble myself and go back, because I really don't want to do this, but I know you want me to, so in obedience to you, I'm going to go, but please help me do it. You want to know when you can start seeing a yes to your prayer requests all the time? Start praying like that. Treat your relationship to God as a relationship to God and not a spiritual exercise or duty. Treat prayer as a part of your Christian life as you're living through your Christian life all day, every day, and ask God for help every time you need it. And that is help obeying Him. Does that make sense? By the way, I'm not going to take the time this morning, but if we were to jump forward into the upper room discourse in John 14, 15, and 16... Uh, you will notice in that passage that every time Jesus is instructing his disciples along the same subject, he says, um, and, and you don't have to turn it, but let me just read it. In, in verse 12 of chapter 14, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will uh, do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And everybody goes, so what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? It means to be asking in accordance with who he is and with what he wants because the very next verse says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. So what are you going to be asking for? Helping me keep your commandments. Give me the strength to obey. Give me the courage to obey. Give me the boldness to step forward and be obedient no matter what it costs me. Listen, that's the nature of prayer. John 15, 12 to 17, John 16, 23 and 24, Jesus says the same thing. Ask anything in my name and I will give it to you. That's an absolute guaranteed yes answer to prayer. 
You know, if you spend most of your time praying like this, instead of praying for the things you want, ask God for the things you need to help you obey Him, you will find that God gives you a yes to almost every single request. And when He doesn't, it's because quickly you'll notice, oh, this is even better. This is abundantly above and beyond anything I could have ever asked or thought. Thank you, God. You'll notice, now you're still in in Matthew 6, right? You will notice in the next verse that he gives illustrations of this. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. See, ask for God to provide for your daily needs and to give you strength to be obedient uh, as a, and, and faithful as an employer and employee. You're asking God to forgive you of your sins because you keep sinning. But you'll also notice at the end, after he's completed his instruction, he says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father uh, will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, then your Father won't forgive you either. You know what the implication is? Listen, God giving a yes answer to you is directly tied to whether or not you're living in communion and fellowship with him. That's that's what it means to ask in Jesus name to really be living for him and asking for him to help you live for him. I think if you give this basic principle that we have just covered If you give thought to this and dedicate to yourself over the course of these next two weeks to praying with this kind of an approach to prayer in mind, I think you'll be amazed to see how how many yeses you get and how directly attentive to God uh, or directly attentive to you God apparently is. And it's not that he hasn't been previously. It's that up to now you haven't wanted his help. You've been living for you and doing your own strength. And when you start asking him for help to see things from his perspective and to enable you to humble yourself and overcome your flesh and do uh, uh, do acts of obedience that, you know, are hard. And there's lots of times in my life, there's lots of times throughout the day when I'm asking for help and it's basic things. God, what's the right thing to say here? Oh, God, help me change my attitude. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming impatient or I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I, I'm taking this this way. And even if they mean it that way, I, I need to repay evil with good or I, at least help me to presume the best. And the, you, you understand what I'm saying? I'm, I'm just thinking through Scripture. I'm asking for help along biblical lines. Now, let's talk about how all of this that we've just kind of done a little introduction on prayer let's talk about how all of this works with evangelism praying evangelistically and i'm just going to cover four ways that you can take what we just talked about and put it into practice in praying evangelistically okay is it okay to pray specifically that god would save so and so Yes. Is it okay to ask God to save the people that you love or even people that you thought of last week that you've dedicated yourself that I'm going to try to share the gospel with this person? I'm going to I'm going to commit to to 
working to find a way to sit down with this person and actually share my testimony or actually share the gospel. And uh, I'm even going to try to invite him to church next week when Pastor Brian goes through the deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me passage. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to follow through with this co-worker, this friend, this neighbor, this family member, whatever. I'm going I'm to do my very best along these lines. Can you pray that God would save that person? Sure. But in the end, you're going to have to tr leave that in God's hands as to whether or not he's going to uh, change their heart and whether they're going to repent, right? That's not something you have control over. What do you have control over? Whether or not you share the gospel with them. Whether or not you are faithful and obedient on your own. So I'm going to give you four things that you can pray for when you're praying for the subject uh, in the subject of evangelism. I'm just going to list them now so you can write them down. And then we're going to go through them in order. Pray for workers. Pray for opportunities. Pray for boldness. And pray for faithfulness. Pray for workers. Pray for opportunities. Pray for boldness. And finally, pray for faithfulness. Pray for faithfulness. Let's look at those in order. Workers, opportunities, boldness, and faithfulness. We're going to start with workers. Pray for workers. You know that in Matthew 28, we talked about it in detail last week, that the, the great commission, the mandate from Christ, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, this is, this is what my instruction is to you. Go and make disciples, uh, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And when he closes off with, lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age, that's what shows you that that mandate is not just for the apostles, it's not just for the early church, it's not just for the first century Christians, it's for the whole of the church age. Okay? This is what we are called to do, this is the purpose of the church. And that includes the idea of evangelism. Okay, and that's for all of us. That's for all of us to be a part of making disciples, sharing the gospel with people who are lost. I want to give you just one quick illustration of this. But first, I want you to take your Bible and turn to Ephesians 4 with me. I want you to see that the expectation for evangelism is not just for those in spiritual leadership and not just for those that are uniquely gifted or given to the, the exercise of evangelism. This is for all of us. Ephesians 4, verse 11. God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Notice that all of those are leadership-type roles, right? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. The one that is still relevant is the last one, pastors and teachers. And why has God given these uh, spiritual leadership roles, these teaching leadership roles, functions to the church? Here's why. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Uh, the word service there, by the way, is the word for ministry. 
for equipping the saints for the work of service or ministry to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and craftiness and deceitful scheming, but instead, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Notice that the work of the ministry is not for the ministers. That's why I have never, never accepted this as a title. I still remember when I first got here. Well, we're, we want to hire you as a minister. Well, uh, being a member would make me a minister. Uh, so that's not a title. Uh, and uh, frankly, I'm not interested in titles. A role or a function as the pastor teacher, that's fine. Uh, and so then my primary responsibility will be equipping everyone to join together so that we collectively and individually are all, f are all biblically literate, theologically, doctrinally sound. Uh, I have the obligation, elders have the obligation of being uh, required to be able to teach the truth and refute error. But everybody in the church, according to this passage we just looked at, needs to be able to recognize error and stay away from it, right? We're not tossed about by every wind of doctrine. If somebody came in here and taught a false, uh, and started teaching false doctrine, if I, if I messed up, and had a, a special speaker come out, come in, and he started proclaiming a different gospel, you would all recognize it. Now, you may not all be able to stand up and go, let me just show you seven ways that that's wrong, and take you to the various passages, okay? But you'll be able to go, well, that doesn't sound like, that's wrong, because the, uh, I, know the, I know that's wrong because I know my Bible, and the Bible says this. Now, all that other stuff you're saying and all those side arguments, I can't refute all that stuff, but I know fundamentally the principle has to be wrong because the Bible says this. You guys can do that. We spent a long time together. This is a very mature congregation. You guys are uh, just a joy to invest in. I remember when the first time we had to go through church discipline, I had to teach on church discipline. The second time we went through church discipline, I had to teach through church discipline. The third time we went through church discipline, I had to teach through church discipline, and then I had to teach, after, after he came back in repentance, then I had to teach through reconciliation of church discipline. Do you know, uh, I was mentioning this a few years ago uh, to the elders, and, 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 and Chuck uh, and Dan and I were discussing, and uh, I still remember saying, you know, at this point, because the question came up, should we teach on church discipline? I said, you know, at this point, the only thing I think we need to worry about is if we didn't follow through with church discipline, I'm pretty sure the church would be going, how come we're not obeying the Bible? Because this has become a very mature body. You just expect that the leadership will do what's biblical, right? You don't have to be convinced that what we are doing as a church when we go through church discipline that that's biblical because you're convinced of it. Okay, uh, what, I'm, what I'm seeking to do today in part, is to convince you that as a member of the body, 
it's your response. It's not my responsibility as the as the hired guy to be out doing all doing the evangelism. It's our responsibility as members of this body, every one of us to be out doing evangelism and to be praying for evangelism and to be praying for the lost and most directly to be praying for ourselves to be obedient and faithful to the charge that God has given to us. My job primarily is to equip all of us, myself through my own studies and then you through teaching you, uh, equipping you for the work of the ministry, the work of the service. That includes encouraging each other on to love and good deeds. And among those good deeds is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And part of that is sharing the gospel with people who are lost. Uh, I want to invite you to, to direct your attention to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. It's a, it's a really interesting passage. I think this is, uh, well, I, I go back and forth. It depends on the passage that I'm in, but a lot of times the church in Antioch is my favorite church in the Bible. I like the church in Jerusalem. It's cool. The church in Antioch, I think, is cooler, and the church in Thessalonica might even be cooler, and I go back and forth, and sometimes Philadelphia, but Generally speaking, I think this is the one I always gravitate back to because this is the church that was the first truly mixed church. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen. So now you go all the way back to when the Apostle Paul was still Saul the Pharisee. And he's in Jerusalem and Stephen stands up before the Sanhedrin and he begins to preach Christ. And they all get upset and he calls them to repentance for their execution of Christ and says they're behaving just like uh, the patriarch, their forefathers did. Just as hard hearted and stiff necked. And what does the Sanhedrin do? It condemns them just like it condemned Christ. And so Saul is a Pharisee. He's given the authority on behalf of the Sanhedrin together with a mob to drag Stephen out and stone him. And, he, uh, and, and Saul, who becomes later the Apostle Paul, is the one there nodding and giving the affirmation, yes, that's absolutely right, this is a judicial act, he is, uh, has offended God and needs to be stoned. Well, then God saves Saul. But in the meantime, what you'll read in Acts 8 and 9 is that when uh, in Acts 7, uh, when that event took place, and Saul affirms the execution of Stephen, at that moment, most of the saints in Jerusalem, the only church up to that point still, are scattered out of Jerusalem. And so those are all Jewish people. Some of them were native Judeans. Some of them were Hellenistic Jews, but they were all Jews. But because of the persecution and the threat of death, most of the people fled. Well, Acts eleven nineteen. those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, they made their way to Phoenicia, that's up north, even north of Galilee, and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. So they went, and all these people that grew up under the apostles, notice they're, they're all engaged in disciples, making disciples and sharing the gospel with everybody. It's not, the apostles aren't even part of this. They stayed in Jerusalem. And they're sharing to 
to Jewish people that they meet wherever they go. They flee from Jerusalem and they go into new places. They, they set down some roots. They get into businesses and they start sharing the gospel with the Jewish people they meet around them. Churches get planted. But there were some of them. These were men of Cyprus and Cyrene. They came to Antioch and it's almost like you could put in here. They didn't know any better. They just started speaking the Greeks to every, uh, speaking the gospel to everybody. They spoke to Greeks also preaching the Lord Jesus. And you know what? The hand of the Lord was with them and a large number of those who believed turned to the Lord. And when news about them reached the ears in the church in Jerusalem, they sent off Barnabas to Antioch to find out what's going on. And sure enough, you know what he finds out? They really did get saved. This is a mixed church. You got both Jews and Gentiles. Wow. And do you know Paul and Barnabas, their missionary journey, it's launched from Antioch, not from Jerusalem. All the churches planted in the eastern part of the, uh, the Roman Empire, they, are not, they did not come out of Jer the church in Jerusalem. They came out of the church at Antioch. Another fascinating little tidbit here is that when Barnabas finds out, oh, wow, look at all these Gentiles that got saved. This is, a, this is actually a fully biblical church. It's made up of both Jews and Gentiles, just like God said to the apostles in, in Luke 24. Wow, look at it's happening. And then he knew that God saved Saul for just this reason. So he ran and got Saul, the persecutor, who was, because of persecution, the instigator of this church getting planted and brings him there and has him start teaching. You know, it, it, it's, it's funny to me that it took the threat of death to move that first church in Jerusalem to actually be obedient in preaching the gospel to people other than your immediate closest friends and neighbors and family members. It took persecution to spread the gospel further. Our hesitancy to be obedience and to be obedient, you know, corporately in this through the years and to, to just naturally gravitate inward and keep learning and becoming more mature. That's not new. That's not original with us. That's a pretty universal and common behavior of most most churches. You get to the point where you're comfortable, you get to the point where you're you're an independent and secure local uh, body and it's really easy just to keep just doing now status quo and focusing inside and believing that you are completely doing what God has called us to do. And all the while you've neglected a significant portion of it, which is continuing to reach out to the lost people around us. Continuing to share the gospel with the people around us, the people that we work with, the people that we uh uh, interact with in social events or athletic events the people that we encounter in our in our our daily business in our daily affairs in our daily jobs you just lose sight of this if you take your bible and turn with me to matthew chapter 9 matthew chapter 9 i want you to see how jesus taught his own disciples this basic lesson matthew 9 we're roughly in the same context in Matthew's gospel here as we are in, uh, it's, it's just a little bit before where we are in Mark's gospel presently. Jesus is nearing the height of his ministry, and he is about to send his disciples out two by two. 
But we're here in Matthew 9, the end of the chapter, starting at verse 35. And you notice it says that Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. He's doing all those miracles, just like we've seen him do as we've gone through the gospel of Mark together. And notice what the text tells us. Jesus, seeing the people, feels compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Notice Jesus' compassion. Notice Jesus' view of lost people. His heart goes out to them. He's genuinely concerned for them. And notice what he says then to his disciples about them. He said to his disciples, verse 37, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Look at all these people that need to hear the gospel. Look at how desperate and sad and without God they are. Headed for a Christless eternity in the lake of fire together with the devil and his angels. Look at how poor and downtrodden and and like sheep without somebody looking out for them. Look at how they are. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send out workers into his harvest. That's what he tells his disciples to pray. And what do you think they did? They probably prayed that prayer. They probably said, Lord, send out workers into your harvest. Now I want you to look at chapter 10. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Here's the names of all of them, Peter, James, John, whatever. Okay, and verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, don't go to the way of the Gentiles or the Samaritans, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The other gospels explain because this is the first mission and it's to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He says, do the miracles, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you receive, freely give, and go on and preach the gospel and do the same ministry I'm doing. Go break out two by two and go. What what did he tell them to pray for? The Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Well, who's the Lord of the harvest? Well, Jesus is. And then what does Jesus then do after they pray? The Lord send out workers into your harvest. He sends them out. Now, when you pray evangelistically, you know what the first thing you should be praying for? Workers. And you know the number one worker that you should be praying that God helps that worker go? Reuben. No. Reuben would go with anybody. Okay? As long as it's not when he has to work or the Lakers are on. Okay? Then... Unless they're losing again, and then he's ready to drop it and head. Well, let's go knock on doors. It's better than watching them lose, right? L- listen, when you pray, when you want to pray evangelistically, ask your Heavenly Father. Ask your Heavenly Father to send out workers into the field. What's required to send out workers? Number one, you need to be able to see the people around you as lost and needing Christ. And stop worrying about what they think of you. And stop worrying about how they might respond to you. And then, and then ask God to change your heart to be genuinely concerned for that person and to send you to share the gospel with them. How many people have been on your list that you have prayed that God would save them that you have done nowhere near what you could do in actually personally sharing the gospel with them? 
Mm. This is this is where Donald's going to pull me over on the side. And you went from preaching to meddling right there. It was 1115 by the clock that's wrong. Okay. <laughs> Listen, you, you want to know how to pray evangelistically? How do you pray? Pray God to help you and what you need. And sometimes what do we need? We need to be reminded that, that, that we should be obedient here. We need to be reminded that we need to make ourselves available here. We need to be reminded that we need to be a part of this here. It's not okay to be a Christian and not be a Christian. Does that make sense? It will in a second. It's not okay to say you're a Christian and not live in obedience to God's commands. And especially when the chief command is you, that, that uh, as far as a commission from Christ to, to the church is to make disciples. It's not okay to be a, a Christian and just be obedient to part of the process of making disciples. Say, well, I'm, yeah, here's where, I, this is my Chuck line. You ready, Chuck? You got your seatbelt buckled? Okay, I'm coming for you. You should be wearing Kevlar now. You say, but, but I'm retired. <laughs> I'm retired. I have to take a vacation every other week to recover from my week of retirement. Okay, well, where are you going? Well, we're going here, we're going there, we're going everywhere. Right, surely there are people there that you're going to encounter. I, I'm pretty sure you didn't walk to Hawaii. You had to sit next to somebody on the plane. Well, it was Gina, and I keep sharing the gospel with her, and then she hits me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know something? Um, praying for God to help you see somebody that you could share the gospel with. Praying that God would help you to, to notice the people that are around you all the time that you've never even thought of sharing the gospel with. Okay? It, the person that you're working next to. The person that you're sitting across the hall from. The person that lives in the house next door or across the street or down the street. Pray for workers. And together with that, pray for opportunities. Pray for opportunities. Uh, pray that God will open the door so that you can sit down and share the gospel with this person. I still think the best text to illustrate this point is John 4. If you want to take your Bibles and go there with me. We're going to do a jet tour through this passage, but I, I want you to pay attention, okay? Not just to Jesus and the woman at the well, Okay? Pay attention to the details that are around the sides of this narrative. I'll show you what I mean in a second. We're in John chapter 4 and verse 1. The general context is that the Lord knows that the Pharisees hear that Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than even John the Baptist. So he is, he is becoming really popular. And because Jesus does not want to clash with the Pharisees before the consummation that God has in store it, that's going to result in going to the cross, Jesus separates himself from that context. Verse 3, he leaves Judea. He goes away again into Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, a quick note here is he didn't have to because it's the only route. In fact, the normal route Jewish people took was a roundabout way past Samaria, so nobody stepped in Samaritan soil. But here it says very directly he had to pass through Samaria. 
And as you follow through the context, you'll see the reason why. Because God had a divinely orchestrated conversation that Jesus was going to have with this woman at the well and with the Samaritans in the village. This was, this was a divinely ordained appointment. And that's why they had to go there. And so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It's about the sixth hour. And you can get into the debate as to whether it's Jewish time or Roman time. It's either noon or 6 p.m. For the sake of argument here, we'll just say it's noon. It's the heat of the day, okay? It's the heat of the day. And he sits down by the well. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And regardless of whether this is noon or 6 p.m., it is rare for a woman to come to the well in the heat of the day. Whether it's the end of the day or the heat of the day, it's rare for a woman to come to the well in the heat of the day, especially to come by herself. You know when the women normally came to the well to draw water? In the morning when it's cool. And they all came together. Why does she come by herself at a time when nobody else would come? Well, because she's essentially an outcast. She's an immoral woman, as we're about to find out. And so she comes at a time when nobody else will be there, so she doesn't have to hear anything from anybody. And when she gets there, she notices that Jesus is sitting there on the, uh, uh, on the side of the well. And the woman of Samaria comes to draw water, and Jesus says, give me a drink. Why? Because his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So that village that she came from, they probably passed her on the way in. They walked right past her. Twelve guys walk right past this woman, never say a word to her. They go into town to buy supplies and food so they can continue their journey the rest of the way to Galilee. Well, Jesus starts up a conversation. He says, Will you give me a drink, please? And the way it's worded in the Greek is in a polite request. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, would ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Notice John's little explanation here. Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews won't even talk to Samaritans. Hence, the 12 guys that walked right past this woman on the way into town and didn't even acknowledge her presence. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. We're ta- I'm, I want to talk to you about spiritual things, not just, a, not just a drink of water. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. She's again thinking physical. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have said correctly, I have no husband, because you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Hmm. Never met her before knows her life story, especially all the sinful bits. You want to know why she comes to the well in the heat of the day by herself? 
She's had five husbands, and the guy she's shacked up with now is not her husband. She's living a, 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 it's just a chain adulterous life. Now she's not even bothering to get married and shacking up with the guy. Notice the woman's response. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> Don't you guess she does. Our father worshiped in this mountain. Let's see, you want to talk about spiritual stuff? Let's talk about the real spiritual issue. As a Samaritan, we think the place to worship is here. As a Jew, you think the place to worship is Jerusalem. If you, if you really are a spokesman for God, what's the answer? What's the answer? Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. You people say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you don't know. So what you're doing here in Samaria, it's wrong. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You got to worship him in accordance with the truth of what he says and from your whole heart. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ and when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, do you know, he never reveals himself this way to anybody. Until Peter says, you are the Christ. And he says, you didn't figure that on your own. The father told you that. And then the high priest before his final trial. This is the one person he says. I who speak to you am he. I'm the Christ. At this point, his disciples came. Now here, remember I told you, pay attention to the details on the side. Okay, now we're into the side details. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. What's he doing? Why would he even be talking to this woman? And yet nobody said, what do you seek or why do you speak with? Nobody was going to call him into question, but it just seemed odd. Why, why would he even bother like striking up a conversation with this woman? I mean, what was he bored? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Notice the impact that Jesus in one conversation had on this woman. You know, it's interesting. She leaves the water pot. You know why she did that? What did Jesus ask for at the beginning of the conversation? A drink. She just left the pot for him. And then she runs into town and she tells the whole town about this Jesus that she just met. And she says, I come and see a man who told me all the things I have done. This couldn't be the Christ, could it? And so now she's basically invited the whole town to come out and meet Jesus. Where did the disciples just come from? That town. And then they come back. And what do they have? Probably bread and supplies for the road. Jesus has a conversation with this woman and she goes in and she brings the whole town out now to meet Jesus. They know who he is and they go into town and don't tell anybody. When, you, when I tell you you need to pray for opportunities, okay, this is what I'm talking about. They're right in front of us. They're right in front of us most of the time. We just wouldn't even think about, consider it. We just don't even think about it. You know why? Because we don't care. If you really cared, you'd be asking God to send workers and you'd be willing to be one of them. You'd be asking God to help you to see the opportunities that you have around you. 
Or when you've got somebody you really want to share the gospel with, you'd be praying specifically that God would orchestrate the circumstances so you could sit down and share the gospel with them. I, 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 think, I think the reason that we don't have as many opportunities as we might like or think we would like is because we're just not even asking for them or looking for them. And sometimes uh, asking for opportunities is really a matter of asking God to help us notice the people around us who might indeed even be open to hearing the gospel. You know, I, I've made reference to this many times. I'll probably hear about it on the way home, but I, I, still, I still can't help but remember when I was first saved, okay? It was my wife who was instrumental in leading me to Christ. And she took me to, to John Street and gave me a book by John MacArthur. And those are the three instruments that God used to bring me to saving faith. Okay? And I'm telling you what, my life changed radically. And it was amazing to me how many biblical Christians, people just like mature believers, Biblically literate, discerning, wise, mature households and mature believers, people of integrity were in the office that came out of the woodwork when they noticed that I, res I rescheduled my daily uh, uh, assignments so that I could listen to grace to you. Is that your Bible? Yeah. Now listen, if you wanted to evaluate the person that was least likely to get saved in my office, it was me. I was a man of, of ultimate arrogance and immorality and uh, greed and self-aggrandizement and I don't even know, okay? It's fully worthy of eternal condemnation, let's put it that way. And you know something? When I got saved, all of a sudden, all these Christians that were sitting around me in all these many offices, there's about 400 people in a department. And all of a sudden, there's about 20 people I didn't even know, know were Christians. And, and guess which one started, guess which, out of all, guess which one started the evangelistic Bible study at lunch? Me, the brand new believer. Just trying to learn it. And just trying to be obedient. Remember how you were when you first came to Saving Faith? Don't let your spiritual maturity distract you from being obedient all day, every day, all the way to glory. Pray for workers. Pray for opportunities. Pray for boldness. You know, we think that the Apostle Paul has to be the most bold preacher of the gospel ever. And apart from Christ himself, and maybe Peter, Paul probably was. But not because he was bold. Because he was obedient and greatly empowered by God in response to prayer. How do you know that? Well, because I've read my Bible. Ephesians 6. Take a look at this text with me. Ephesians chapter 6. We'll just jump down to verse 18. Paul has completed his explanation of the uh, uh, armor of God. And he says now, in closing, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. In other words, keep praying for everybody. 
and pray on my behalf as well. And keep in mind, Ephesians is written while Paul is in prison at Rome and facing a death sentence before the uh, Siri, uh, Caesar. Siri? <laughs> before. That's, that's Nero and Caesar put together. Ooh, the new conspiracy theory just hatched. Okay. Uh, please don't start that one. I like Siri. Uh, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and uh, with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf as well, that utterance may be given me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, and that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Notice he doesn't ask to be delivered from prison. Notice he doesn't ask to have his life spared. Notice the one thing he asked for is that he would have the boldness, the courage that comes from God to stand up and speak the way he ought to speak and point to Christ like he ought to point to him. You know what? There are times when the person you're getting ready to share the gospel with seems scary. There are times when it's, it's easy to be, well, my, what if I lose a promotion? What if, I, what if this ends my career? What if, what if, what? Okay, what if Christ were actually honored through the proclamation of my, that came from my mouth that pointed to him? You know, Paul is the most bold preacher in the New Testament after Christ in my opinion, not because he was naturally bold, but because he was continually praying for it and asking everybody to pray that for him. And they did. And God answered that request with a yes and an amen. Turn over a couple of pages to the right and look at Colossians chapter 4. We'll just pick up in verse 2. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. Yeah, that is not saying make sure you have a really, really rigorous prayer life where you have your one hour of devotions and prayer time where you go through the same list over and over again, asking those same requests over and over again and check off the box. Yes, I was spiritual today. I got my spiritual duty done. No, he's saying pray, uh, devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving and praying at the same time for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word, an opportunity to stand up and speak for him so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned and that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. I just want to get the message right. I just want to point faithfully to Christ. Pray for boldness. Boldness includes not, not sugarcoating the gospel. Not avoiding a discussion of sin. Somebody's in an immoral relationship, I call them on it. I don't care how close of a relationship I have to that person. Somebody's in sin, I call them on it. Why? Because it's the truth. I'm not condemning them. Their behavior condemns them. I'm calling them that, and confronting and saying, you say you're a Christian, this is the way you live. <laughs> you know there's a contradiction, don't you? You know what God has called for? You know why Christ came? To die and pay for sins like that. Listen, this is, this is the reality. You can say you're a Christian all you want. But if your life is being lived contrary to, uh, to what Scripture says, deep down in your heart, you know you still stand condemned before God. 
Because if you really believed it, you would turn from your sin and walk in obedience. You know what? It, it, it takes boldness. It takes courage. It takes something that only God can supply to be able to stand up and preach that truth. There's a lot more I could say on that. I'll just close off with this. Pray for faithfulness. Just pray that God will help you be faithful, to be obedient as a Christian, to doing your part in sharing the gospel. Doing your part in inviting people to be reconciled to God. You know, you really can do everything better that we do everything that we do for God in this life we can do it better in glory I enjoyed singing this morning I really did to God be the glory is one of my favorite hymns uh, <laughs> I, I'm I can't sing like I used to I just can't uh, I, I can try to belt it out and I can try a little bit of vibrato, but I just don't have it. And, and, but, you know, when I get the glory and I have a new body, oh, I look forward to singing that hymn and a bunch of others. Be thou my vision. I, I, I look forward to living a sinless life in heaven. I'll be able to I'll be able to live my life better in heaven. I love my wife. I do. There's nobody I've had to ask forgiveness from more than my wife. There's nobody that's forgiven me more than my wife. Uh, I love you. I love preaching the word of God, but it'll be so much better when it's Jesus is preaching. And he won't even need to because it'll be written on our heart. Everything about the Christian life that we love and enjoy will be able to do better in glory. The one thing the one way we will not be able to glorify Christ in glory is sharing the gospel with people who are lost. Living for God in a sin-cursed and fallen world with the lost people around us and noticing them and broaching the subject of the gospel and their eternal standing before God, that's the one thing that we don't have an opportunity to do in the future. You know why? Because they won't be there. Do you really want to miss out on this opportunity? Do you love Christ? Are you thankful for your salvation? Do you want to be obedient to him? Do you have, do you have shortcomings and concerns and anxieties? Uh, listen, how do I pray evangelistically? I pray that God will enable me to uh, have, to, first of all, to recognize my need to be an instrument that would be useful to him in pointing others to Christ. I pray that God will give me boldness to speak the way I ought to speak, that he will help me to see the opportunities that are in front of me. And when I have an opportunity that I would follow through, make an appointment to have lunch or dinner and share my testimony, whatever. And that he would just help me to be faithful as a Christian, not just in my marriage, not just in my home, not just in my integrity, not just in my speech, but also in my act of obedience in sharing Christ with those around me. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for the way that you have blessed us with the privilege to speak for you in a lost and fallen world. Thank you for the greatness of your love toward us in Christ that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you 
that you were willing to make him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could be the righteousness of God in Christ. On the basis of all, of you, all that you have done for us, O oh Lord, help us to, in our prayers, stop asking for what we want and indeed dedicate ourselves to being obedient to you and asking for what we need to accomplish that because you take much delight in supplying us all that we lack to do what you've commanded us to do. In so many ways, this is very much like the lesson you were teaching the apostles with the feeding of the multitudes and the walking on the water. We just need to learn to look up. We need to be those who pray without ceasing. That is, we're always in conversation with you. It's not just about a set time with a cup of coffee or tea and our Bibles open. It's all day living in communion and fellowship with you, living in a, with a continual awareness of the presence of God, our Heavenly Father who loves us, who has set before us a life that we can live for you. Help us, O oh God, to be alert to you and actively looking for ways to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.